So I don't know about you, but I know that some of my fasting experiences looked quite similar to that video. For those that don't know me, my name is Joel, and if you haven't already guessed, I'm going to be sharing about fasting, um, what it is, why we do it, what Jesus says about it, and the rewards and promises that God gives us when we do it. Um, so I'd like to welcome everyone, and especially if you're visiting, uh, a special welcome, and I hope you feel at home. Um, so the good news is that that video was from a different church, so we're not going to be doing 21 days of fasting. But the bad news is that no one is allowed to eat morning tea this morning. Just kidding, there will be morning tea. Um, so it is an honour to be able to share with you uh, this morning. And as I, as I share, I want to encourage everyone not to listen to what I have to say, but position your ears, hearts and minds to hear what God might be saying to you. And I want to encourage everyone also to test everything that I say and weigh it up against the Scriptures and the nature of who God is. And so feel free uh, to come up to me afterwards if you have any questions or want to engage further with any of the content um, that, I've, that I've said. And if anything's too difficult, I'm just going to pass it on to Tim. Um, so thanks, Tim. So, yeah, if you haven't been here the last couple of months, Tim has done an awesome job of, on focusing on the importance of food and eating together. However, I'm here to tell you how good it is not to eat food together. And so my aim is not to undo all the great work um, that Tim has done, but to complement and add to the deeper sense of community that has, that has uh, been developed by encouraging everyone, everyone to ironically do the opposite, and that is not to eat together. So hopefully by the end of, end of this morning, we'll be able to see um, that not eating together is just as important and, and, and powerful as eating together. Yeah, so aptly I've named the sermon this morning, The Empty Table, The Empty Stomach and The Full Life. So Ecclesiastes 2.24 says that there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labour is good. Similarly, in 8.15, it says, So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. So this is the wisest man in the world telling us that there is nothing better to do than to eat and drink and be merry. So why should we fast? From what I can see, Scripture indicates at least 19 different circumstances where fasting was practised. So on an overall level, fasting is practised both corporately and, and privately. So let's have a look at some of those now. So the following reasons are reasons and circumstances where the, Bible, where the people in the Bible fasted. So there's for deliverance from prison, for seeking prophetic direction, when commissioning others into leadership, when in a place of captivity, when at war with our family, before going to war as a means of humbling ourselves, when faced with imminent death, to seek God's protection for ourselves and others, for spiritual renewal, to express our longing for Jesus' bridegroom as a lifestyle choice, to receive clear direction, to help make ministry decisions, to receive revelation, for spiritual breakthrough as an expression of mourning, as an expression of repentance, and for seeking restoration. And so all of these examples 
give quite a broad overview of why we might fast. Before I go any further, I, I just want to really get really practical and quickly explain the four different types of fasts that we can do. There is a complete fast, a selective fast, a partial fast, and a soul fast. So the complete fast is pretty much means what it says. It is where we go without all food for anywhere between one to 40 days and, and only drink water or sometimes light juice. So Jesus did this fast and he did it without water as well for 40 days in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil. Moses did the same fast on the top of Mount Sinai when he received the Ten Commandments. And Elijah also fasted for 40 days without food. Many people in this day and age have completed 40-day fasts, both Christian and non-Christian. I personally haven't done one, um, and I, I wouldn't recommend it. I'd like to try it one day maybe, but um, norm, normally with the complete fast, I think one or two days is, 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 is all right. <laughs> I can handle that. Um, so the second type of fast is called the selective fast. And it is where we only eat selected foods and exclude other types of foods. This is modelled on the fast that Daniel did. It says in Daniel 1.8, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. So although we don't have to do it in this exact way, the general idea is that we only eat selected foods for a given period of time for the purpose of seeking after God. And the third type of fast is the partial fast, or sometimes known as the Jewish fast. This involves abstaining from all food for just a portion of the day, usually between either sunrise or sunset or 6am and 3pm. Again, it is just usually, usually for just a specific number of days. And the final type of fast is called a soul fast. This isn't specifically found in the Bible, but according to the heart behind fasting, which we'll look at shortly, it is where we abstain from certain activities for the purpose of seeking God through prayer. Usually it involves abstaining from things like social media or Netflix or any kind of activity. In particular, those activities that we tend to that we may be somewhat addicted to or tend to overconsume. So these are the four different types of fasts that we can do. So, so far we've, we've done a quick overview of the scriptures and explored the circumstances and some of the reasons why people fasted. We've quickly looked at how to fast, but why has God chosen this particular practice? What's so special about it? What does it do for us? What does it do for God? And why is going without food beneficial for anything? So to help give a bit of a foundation, I've tried to put in one sentence the purpose of what I believe fasting is. And this doesn't encapsulate everything, but it just outlines the general purpose. So fasting is the intentional starving of our soul or physical body, of temporal sources of comfort, sustenance, joy, satisfaction and pleasure for the purpose of seeking God through prayer and giving him greater opportunity to be those things for us to a greater measure in a way that is everlasting and eternal. It encompasses the idea 
that we starve ourselves from the many temporal inputs from the world and purposely position our hearts and our minds to both receive his eternal life, his eternal joy, his eternal love, and really experience what it means to truly find satisfaction in him, that we would be filled with the fullness of Christ. And so when we think about fasting, is it as normal and regular in your life as prayer? Is it as normal and regular in your life as giving? I want to propose to you that fasting is not just for the spiritual elite, not just for the weirdos or those within the cult, but for the everyday Christian in their everyday life, for you and for me. So Matthew 6 contains what I like to call the three whens of the Christian life. Jesus says, when you give to the poor, do it this way. When you pray, do it this way. And when you fast, do it this way. So when I'm reading that, there's no if, but it is assumed and implied that it is something that we will do. Jesus talks about prayer and giving in the same way as he talks about fasting. It's like all these three all of these things were just normal things that Jesus assumed that we would do. So my question is, is it? Is it something that we, that we do as often as those other things? And if not, why not? And so for the remainder of the sermon, I'm just going to go a bit deeper with two specific scriptures that reveal more the power and purpose of fasting so that we may be encouraged to practice it more. So firstly, let's have a look at Judges 2, 18 to 28. So the reason I have chosen the scripture is because it demonstrates an association between fasting and victory. We all face different kinds of battles in our lives and I believe that for whatever reason, fasting is directly link, linked to us walking in the victorious lifestyle that God desires for us all. So I'm just going to read it. So now the sons of Israel arose, went up to Bethel and inquired of God and said, who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin. Then the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gibeah. Then the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed to the ground on that day 22,000 men of Israel. But the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. So the sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. Then the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah the second day and destroyed to the ground again 18,000 men of the sons of Israel. All these drew the sword. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? 
And the Lord said, go up for tomorrow. I will deliver them into your hand. And so reading this story, there are a couple of things that I noticed, things that stood out. One was the more Israel turned to God and obeyed, the more the expression of their prayer life became more broken. And two, the more broken their prayer life became, the less casualties they lost at war. And then number three, it was only after they had fasted that God pronounced victory. So I like tables. And so the table on the the screen outlines these observations. And so as you can see, Israel's initial inquiry of God was just that, a simple inquiry as to who should go up first to fight. It didn't really seem that intense. And so as we can see, the reward for their prayers and obedience was the loss of 22,000 men. So upon returning back to the Lord, this time their coming to him was a bit more intense and a bit more broken. This time they came inquiring and weeping. And as a reward for their prayers and obedience, they lost another 18,000 men. So the third time they came back to God, and it was with inquiring and weeping and sacrifices and fasting. And it was at this point when their desperation was at its highest, compelling them to fast, that God decided then that he would pronounce victory for them over the sons of Benjamin. And the next day, in accordance with God's pronouncement of victory, they defeated their enemy and put to death 50,100 sons of Benjamin. And so that the, more, the more they came back to God, the more broken they became, and the more broken they became, the fewer their casualties were. And I want to point out that I don't think they were like, oh no, we forgot to fast the first time we came to God, so, let, so let's put that into our prayer life so that he will give us victory. From what I can see, it was more like we are desperate. We don't know what else to do. We are crying out to God. We are willing and we are hurting. This is hard. We've lost men. What should we do next? I think it's also important to note that as we can see, that victory doesn't necessarily come straight away. It requires us to keep on turning up and asking and obeying no matter what the cost and no matter how broken we become. Sometimes God calls us to continue to confront circumstances that oppose the victory that God, that God desires for us, so much so that in doing so, our expression of desperation is characterised by humility to fast. What if Israel had only inquired once and then left embittered because God didn't cause them to win after their first prayer? Would they have come into victory? And there's a story in my life that I just want to share now that is similar to that. I haven't been to war, um, but it felt like a bit of a war. Um, so there was a time about two or three years ago when um, my wife at the time, Candice, we were living in my parents' house and the environment was, re- was really good, but we were kind of looking for a place to live. And um, yeah, I wouldn't recommend living at your parents' house when you're, when you're newly married, um, but it was, it, was a, it was good at the time. Um, and so as we were looking for places to live, there was this townhouse 
across the road from the North Lakes Lake at North Lakes that Candace really, like it was her dream to move into somewhere like that. And it was available. And so I'd prayed about whether we, it would be a good idea to go there and I got a no. I felt like I got a no from God. And I was like, okay, well, we'll apply and see what happens. Hopefully, in, like within me, I was like, well, hopefully we don't get approved. <laughs> Secretly, um, and so we applied, and we got approved. And I was like, "Oh no, what am I going to do now?" And so I prayed about it, and I really felt like we shouldn't go into that townhouse. And so I said, "This is this is how I through praying. This is how I feel. So we're not going to do it." And she was very gracious and agreed. And that was really hard for me to do. Um, and so again. A uh, short while later, we were still living in my parents' house. And then someone that I knew, who lives right on the waterfront at Sandgate, um, they were going away on an overseas holiday for a couple of months. And they gave us the opportunity to live in their house for a couple of months for $40 a week. And I was like, that, their house is just really nice. And that was such a good opportunity. And so I prayed about it. And I was like, oh, I don't think that we should do it. And... That was hard as well. And again, she was gracious and, and that's what we did. And, and then so we're still at our parents' house, dragging out for months and months. And during this time also, um, my, dad was in a, my dad proposed something to, to us in that he, if we found the right house, he, he would buy it and that we would, rent it, we would rent it off him. And then when we had enough money for a deposit, he would sell it to us at the same price that he bought it. And so that was, that was another great opportunity, but nothing had kind of come along um, at that time. And so this kind of dragged out for a bit, and it got to the stage where I can remember so vividly, um, Candace got to a place where she had had enough. <laughs> she, she wanted a place of her own, and she just started crying. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, come on, God. Like, I've been trying to do the right thing. I've been... I've been walking, trying to obey about what you're, what you're leading me here, that my wife is crying and I need to do something about it. And um, I was talking to um, someone else in my life about, about this journey and throughout this time, and they told me this story. It's a fake story, and I've heard it before. And it's about this guy who's stuck in a flood. The water comes up to his um, knees, and then he sees this guy in a boat come drive past and the guy goes, jump in, the floods are coming, you're going to die. And he says, no, no, God will save me. Um, so he just stayed in the same place that he was. And then the floods kind of rose up a bit further, same kind of thing happened. Jump in the boat, the floods are coming, you're going to die. And he goes, no, no, I don't need to, God's going to save me. And then it gets to a point where this guy's standing on the top of his house and the waters are up to his chin something along those lines. And then this helicopter flies past above his head, throws down a ladder and says, jump in, the f like you're going to get taken away by the flood. And the guy goes, no, no, it's all right, God's going to save me. And so the guy ends up dying. And so it's a fake story. And so he gets to heaven and he stands before God and he says, God, why didn't you save me? And God's like, I tried. I sent boat after boat after boat and then I sent a helicopter. And as as... As I was hearing this story and reminded of that story, in my heart I was like, God, I don't want to be the guy 
that doesn't jump in that helicopter. And so saying no to all these good opportunities, like I questioned whether I was doing the right thing. And so back to where my, back to where my wife is crying, I remember, okay, God, I was just so desperate for God to do something. And the funny thing was that this unit at North Lakes was still available. And I was like, okay, God, I'm going to do a fast and you need to come through for me. And so I did, I did a fast, just a one-day fast without any food, and it was horrible. <laughs> and it was no fun at all. And I got to the end of the fast, and I felt that God hadn't spoken to me. I didn't feel that I got anything, and I felt so defeated. And I just thought that that was the biggest waste of time ever. And so I said to God, okay, I don't feel like I'm, that you've shown me anything. I need to do something here. So I got Candace to apply for that townhouse, even though I didn't feel like we should go there the next morning. And so the next morning she did, but upon doing it, someone earlier that morning had just been approved. And so on the inside, I was like, I was torn because I was like happy that someone else got approved because I didn't feel like we should go there. And at the same time, I was left with nothing to do. But that night, that very night, the day after that I fasted, my dad gave me a call and said that he had a call from the real estate agent saying that there was a house that wasn't on the market yet, but he wanted, to, he wanted us to have a look at. And so that night we went and had a look at it and it just ticked all the boxes that, that we had um, at that time. And there was a real piece about it and we were like, I think this is it. And then... So I can remember, again, at that night, I was standing on the driveway uh, with my mum talking about it, and then we hear something, and then a helicopter flies above my head. <laughs> and I was like, thank you, God. <laughs> and so, yeah, we ended up getting the house, and I'm still there today, and it's in Kalinga. And so similar to that story, it was like God led me on a journey of just being willing to obey, but not necessarily getting an answer straight away. But I, but I was led to a point where in my desperation, I decided to fast. And in this particular story, the day after I fasted, just like this story here, the, the day after that they were broken enough that they fasted, that God pronounced victory in their situation. And so, yeah, I feel... I got quite encouraged when, when all that kind of happened. And to me, it just revealed the power of just allowing ourselves to be, just to be that broken and desperate that we would incorporate fasting into our life. And so in this story, it, it worked to my advantage. But in saying that, not all my fasting experiences have worked out like that. And so what do we do when our fasting and our prayer don't bring into effect a positive outcome in our circumstances like these stories in the Bible suggest. Does that mean that it was all without meaning, that we poured ourselves out for nothing? Does it mean that it was without effect? And so there, again, there was another particular circumstance in my life that I've been praying and, and fasting for, for a significant amount of time. And my practice of fasting was in no means perfect, but it was incorporated into contending for this particular circumstance in my life. And that particular circumstance, it didn't end up like I prayed for. It didn't end up like I, was, like I contended for, like I had poured 
poured out all those prayers for. And so, like, what do you do in that situation? And, and it was devastating, and it was as far from what I believe that God wanted for that particular situation. And so I want to encourage anyone who has specifically encountered the disappointment of praying, contending, and fasting for a particular outcome, but experienced the opposite. And so I want to encourage you to look at the bigger picture. That although the, that particular chapter in your life may seem like it's over, and it, although it may have seemed like you lost, the reality is, is that the story of our life is still being written. That there are still chapters of redemption and of salvation. and a victory that is still yet to be written. I didn't want to cry. And God is not finished, and he is still working out the good things for those that love him. And so secondly, we need to ask ourselves, what would it have been like if we hadn't have prayed and fasted? And this we don't actually know. But looking back over the circumstances in my own life that didn't work out like I was praying and fasting for, it could have been a lot worse. And my heart could have easily been not in the place of the strength that it is today. And thirdly, I believe there is a greater purpose to fasting than simply contending for the victory in our circumstances. And this leads us into the next scripture I want to look at which was read at the beginning of this morning. That's Matthew 9, 14, 15. Actually, it's a different one. <laughs> Sorry. So this one says, Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. So essentially, it portrays the purpose of fasting as getting in touch with, as cultivating and expressing our deep longing for Jesus, mourning over his physical absence and longing for his return. Additionally, it is a means of encountering his deep passion and longing for us with the intensity likened to that found in a marriage relationship. It helps him to help us further realise that he is the prize, that he indeed is our reward and that he is the ultimate object of our affection. To awaken our lovesickness for him, to get in touch with our deepest desire to be with him wholly and completely and to know what it means to experience finding lasting satisfaction in his presence. And so this scripture is the first scripture that is used by Jesus to reveal himself as the bridegroom of God. He was introducing a new paradigm for fasting and it can be seen as an invitation to enter into a deeper reality of intimacy with Jesus as bridegroom. The apostles and disciples in Jesus' time experienced the intimacy of knowing him while he walked on earth. And when, and when Jesus was taken away, 
They would have mourned and longed for his physical presence, just in the same way we mourn for and long for the presence of loved ones we may have lost. So this longing for the nearness of Jesus in light of his, the absence of his physical presence is why we fast today. And we continue to fast in this way until he returns again. It is a response to the deep groan of our hearts for more of him, to be with him and to be near him. John Piper describes this lovesickness in this way. It says the birthplace of Christian fasting is homesickness for God. In the summer of 1967, this is John speaking, not me. I had been in love with Noel for a whole year and if you had told me that we would have to wait another year and a half to marry, I would have protested firmly. For, for us, it seemed the sooner the better. And it was the summer before my senior year in college, I was working as a water safety instructor at a Christian athletic camp in South Carolina. And never had I known an aching like this one. I'd been homesick before, but never like this. And every day I would write her a letter and talk about this longing. In the late morning, just before lunch, there would be a, a mail call. And when I heard my name and saw the lavender envelope, my appetite would be taken away. Or more accurately, my hunger for food was silenced by the hunger of my heart. And often, instead of eating lunch with the campers, I would take the letter to a quiet place in the woods and sit down on the leaves for a different kind of meal. It was the real thing. But the colour, the smell, the script, the message, the signature were foretastes. And with them, week by week, I was strengthened in hope and the reality just over the horizon was kept alive in my heart. But the story of my heart hunger to be with Noel could be misleading. It tells only half the story of Christian fasting. Half of Christian fasting is that our physical appetite is lost because our homesickness for God is so intense. And the other half is that our homesickness for God is threatened because our physical appetites are so intense. And so in the first half, appetite is lost. In the second half, appetite is resisted. In the first, we yield to the higher hunger that is. In the second, we fight for the hunger that isn't. Christian fasting is not only the spontaneous effect of a superior satisfaction in God, it is also a weapon, a chosen weapon against every force in the world that would take that satisfaction away. And so I would recommend reading John Piper's book on a hunger for God. And so my question is, are we hungry for him? And I believe each of our hearts deeply hunger for him, whether we realise it or not. And that level of realisation we have of this is to some extent determined by what we are filling our lives with. And just like our physical bodies have a limited daily capacity of what we consume, so does our soul have a limited daily capacity of what it can consume. And so just quickly, the book of Sol Song of Solomon also helps, gives a picture of this love sickness. So Song of Solomon 1, 2 verse 4 says, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance, and your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you, and let us run together. See, the bride would have had to encounter the love 
and kisses of the bridegroom in order to know how good that love was, to boast about it and to desire and long for it more. Her desire for more is indicated by words in verse 4 where it says, draw me after you and let us run together. She was essentially saying, I want to be near you. I want to go wherever you go and I want to be where you are. It was an all-sensory experience. She was physically touched by his kisses in a personal way, signified by her desire to be kissed on her lips. And verse verse 3 indicates that it appealed to her smell and her hearing. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance and your name is like purified oil. The exchange of words between the bride and the bridegroom that followed were one of mutual affirmation shared between the two lovers and in the same way, the relationship that Jesus longs to have with his bride, the church, is one of continual exchange and affirmation of the love that we share together. In chapter 2, 5, the bride feather expresses her desire, saying, Sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. And so the intensity of this lovesickness causes her to move from her place of comfort to seek after him even more. And this is evidenced in chapter 2.10 where there was an invitation from the bridegroom for the bride to arise, to come up to be where he was. And instead of him coming to her, there was a call for her to come to him. And she was compelled further to seek him because of the desire that she had for him, which was only gained by him reaching out and loving her in the first place. And Jesus has already come to us and has demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross. And we encounter this love in our hearts. And we continue to hear him calling us to come to him and follow him, and he continues to invite us to be where he is. And so the story in Song of Solomon goes on. My question is, is the intensity of desire and longing that the bride had for her bridegroom in this story our reality? Is the satisfaction that she experienced in his love the satisfaction that we have in Jesus' love? And I believe it is a longing with this kind of intensity that Jesus wants to form in us through fasting. And it's not something that we can conjure up within ourselves, but it is only the result of deeply encountering his love for us. And so when we fast, we give greater opportunity for him to consume us with his love. And so finally, as we finish, I want to encourage everyone to do two things. Just make a decision to give fasting a go. And number two, keep yourself encouraged in it by feeding yourself on the promises that God has for you in this. And the Father promises to to reward us when we fast. And as we can see from the Bible reading that was given at the start of the sermon, God rewards those who fast with a correct heart. Mike Bickle provides insight into this when he says, Throughout history, people have often fasted with a wrong focus, seeking to earn God's favour and attention. 
but we can never manipulate God. We can embrace extreme self-debasements in our desire to prove our dedication to him, but this is not what he's after. What he delights in is our obedience. And our pursuit of intimacy with him. More, more important to him than fasting is that we do his will. The Lord spoke through Samuel the prophet saying that it is better to obey God than to offer him a special sacrifice. And so further to this, James 4, 8 gives us this promise, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See what James is talking about here is that the reality for all believers is that the Spirit of God dwells within us. So in the sense of this spiritual proximity, he is as close as he is ever going to be. There is nothing more that we have to do. Our spirit, for those that believe in Jesus, has already been joined with God's spirit, and we are already one with him. So this promise can't be talking about that kind of nearness. But what I believe it's talking about is a relational nearness. As we draw near to God in a relational sense, he will draw near to us in a relational sense. A husband and wife can live in the same house, but they can be worlds apart relationally. And God's spirit can dwell in our hearts, but we can be worlds apart from him. And so finally from Hebrews 10 verse 22, it says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith, confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so I don't know where you're at today. Whether you hunger for God, whether you don't hunger for God, whether you're in need of God to break through in your circumstances. I just want to encourage, just as we sing this last song, that you just cry out to him wherever you are and just, yeah, just talk to him. So we're going to pray and get the band back up. So Jesus, we just thank you that you came for us, that you died for us, and that you came so that we could have life to the full. We thank you that you didn't give up on us, we thank you that your love is just so great. And as we, as we worship now, and as we go out in our weeks, I pray that you would just continue to awaken us, just a hunger for you. Uh, yeah, just a hunger for you, Jesus. And that you would just grant us the grace that as we pray and as we continue to seek you, that we would use fasting as an expression of this and that in doing so that we would truly all come to find a deep satisfaction in your presence within us.